there was a saying at the Giants in those days, and I'm not saying it was unique to the Giants, but it made a lot of sense to me. And the notion was, coaches and players, win the at-bat. Win the at-bat. Whether you're pitching and defending or you're batting. Win the at-bat. Win the inning. Win the game. Win the series. And that's how you get into the playoffs. Welcome back to the Inspired Execution Podcast. Each episode shares the experience and learnings of a world-class leader on their journey to success. The guests on this podcast are bold, brilliant, and not afraid to change. As you navigate your own path, we hope you feel inspired by their stories, lessons learned, and the vision of the future. Today, we're excited to welcome Bill Newcomb, founder, president, and CEO of the World Justice Project. Bill dominated in his field as a lead lawyer for Microsoft for more than 25 years before serving as managing partner for the San Francisco Giants. Now he runs his own company with a mission to promote the rule of law throughout the world. We talk about what it's like to work with Bill Gates, positive coaching, and how his organization is merging the tech with the law to make global impact. Let's kick this off. What's the one thing that very few people know about you? That I treated my share of the Microsoft stock option windfall as a sort of undeserved life bonus. And as a result of that, I have tried to be wise about returning the bulk of it to the community in terms of investments in social activities. That's awesome. I hope every listener takes that as a gift, right? Because even if it's not the entire entire windfalls, if we can take a portion of our windfall and say it's dedicated to social causes, that would be awesome. So you grew up in Silicon Valley, San Mateo to be specific, right? Yep. When did you know you wanted to pursue a career in law? Well, I think, uh, Chet, even as a youngster, I always had this overbearing sense of fair play. Couldn't stand bullies on the playground. And fair play in all walks of life seemed to me to be such an important theme. And once I was in a law school, the path was clear to a legal practice. Do you think, Bill, a lot of lawyers today, I'm sure you land up mentoring many folks, do you think they think about getting into law because they really are deeply interested in fair play? I think they always have, Chet, but I also think this generation of applicants to law schools are more explicitly curious about justice. They think of justice as the North Star of their working lives. And so it's a wonderful time to be in law school and to see these brilliant undergraduates applying to come there. I sometimes tease people in the profession saying, you should rename yourself the X school of justice, not just the school of law. <laughs> There's plainly a trend in that direction, I think, for, for applicants. I think there's a trend in the world for it. And obviously it shows up in lawyers as well, but that's a keen observation that they just, I, I feel like this generation just feels like it is on them. And if they don't get it right, they're going to screw it up much more than other generations before this one. Yep, I agree with that. And do you think that's happening because information is so widely available and they grew up with it? I think that's part of it, Chet, but like, like you and many others, I do worry about the quality of information that's available. There's a 
Now, there's a huge pool of information available thanks to social media. Some of it's not very high quality. Some of it can be misleading. We hear a lot about misinformation. So there's always that footnote to any acknowledgement of the additional information available to people. But students, good students are mature enough and are critical thinkers enough that they can sort of filter through that and get to the stuff that's real without, without the curator we're used to having in terms of reliable newspapers and fewer TV channels and the like. How you got started at Microsoft is a super interesting story, right? You were working for Bill Gates Sr.'s firm, and he came to you with the opportunity. Tell us about that conversation. I'd only been at Bill's law firm a few months, and I was still in a temporary office, and he came down to my office one day. I felt lucky to be there to play any kind of a role I could in a law firm led by him. He was our managing partner. He said to me, Bill, my son is bringing his business up here from Albuquerque, and because they're coming here, we'll have our, the first opportunity to represent them. Would you be willing to keep an eye on them? And I said, well, of course I would. And I said, what is his business? And he said, I think it's something to do with computer software or something. And I said, okay, great. I have a lot to learn about that. And he said, well, good. I'll, I'll let him know that you are the person he should reach out to when he gets up here. Well, within a few weeks' time, Bill and Paul Allen came up to Seattle. There were 10 others at Microsoft as employees at the time. And we started conversing. And the fairest way to summarize my, again, my undeserved opportunity to work with Microsoft was that it was a whole lot of on-the-job training for about 25 years, just things coming in from all directions. And thank goodness I had such smart, wise, hardworking clients, and I had people smarter than me and better than I as lawyers in my department to help me seize opportunities with the company and avoid challenges, manage challenges. It was, it was quite a ride, to say the least. You're the first person I have met when they say Bill Gates, you actually mean Bill Gates Sr. Everybody else will mean the Bill Gates that they know, the CEO and founder of Microsoft. Yes. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. That is pretty amazing. That, that's a great story. So 25 years at Microsoft, as you just said, what was the biggest takeaway for you? There were three themes that came to the surface as I think about what I learned at Microsoft. And they all have to do with Bill Jr., if you will. And that is because they reflect his his instincts, his priorities. And the first one was application. Bill was famous at Microsoft for saying to all of us, you should use more of your brains, more of the time. <laughs> and it was contagious because he was so driven to do that himself and set a beautiful example. And we learned that it really made a difference. To the, he'd say, don't go hire some expert, go read a book. and become an expert yourself and then come back to me and give me an approach, a strategy to go forward. So the first was application. How do you apply your brain to solving problems in a way that's helpful to our company? And the second thing I think was meritocracy. Bill was well known for being able in a meeting to very early on identify who was best prepared and who would bring the best critical thinking to the matter at hand. And that's the person he wanted to learn from. He didn't care about your title. You could be somebody who was a summer associate, but if you were really prepared to talk to him about some new angle on this matter, 
you're the person he wanted to talk with, not your vice president, your boss, four layers up. And again, that was contagious. It taught all of us that each of us could have an opportunity to make a real difference. And the third theme was generosity. Uh, Bill's notion was that everybody at that company deserved to be a part of the stock option plan. And I don't think in the history of America there's ever been a company that drove stock option benefits so deep into its roster as Microsoft did. So you were at Microsoft and then you joined the San Francisco Giants. What's that about? Part of it, Chet, is an admiration of the people who play what I think is still the most difficult sport ever invented. And all of the, as a wise man once said, never underestimate the difficulty of winning a single Major League Baseball game. And so it started with some admiration for that game and vagaries. And then when I had a chance to invest in the Giants, I was eager to do that. And when I had a chance to be part of management there, I was pleased to see some opportunities to use themes and cultures that I'd learned in the private practice and at Microsoft and to see how they worked in a baseball business. And there's the baseball side and the business side. But it turns out that you know, themes like meritocracy, like having a diverse and authentic workplace, like sharing credit. If you give everybody as much or more credit than they deserve for their work, they will jump through the roof for you. The meritocracy, it doesn't matter who you work for, it matters what you're doing for the good of the cause and you'll be recognized for that. So don't waste your time figuring out who's favored by the boss, figure out what you can do to make your job meaningful for the enterprise. It was a great opportunity and again, working with some some very smart, very dedicated people on both the business and the baseball side. But there's some universal value to those things that I learned in the private practice and at Microsoft. It is a fascinating, right? To the layman, you would say, Microsoft 25 years, San Francisco Giants, similarities, no, <laughs> none whatsoever, right? It doesn't <laughs> matter whether it's on the field or off the field for the Giants, right? And how what you learned at private practice, what you learned at Microsoft, what shaped you, you were able to adapt that to the San Francisco Giants. And I learned a lot from the people on the baseball side, Chet. Some of the smartest people I'd ever had the privilege of working with were scouts, were coaches, were hitting instructors, to say nothing of the field managers and the general managers. They were These are very, very intelligent people who are meticulous in their analysis and are just work seven days a week trying to put competitive baseball on the field because they take seriously this notion that baseball is so much the fabric of a community and is such a privilege to be able to be organizing it. And, and my view is that baseball, especially at the major league level, is a kind of quasi public trust. And your responsibility, if you're going to be managing that operation, is to see to it that somehow, through hard, smart work, you're putting on the field every season a team that is at least competitive and one hopes more years than not it's contending see, from a fan base, I think. 
That is so true. Yep, that's very true. So we uh, at Datastack keep talking about building a championship team and, you know, it's championship time every day, right? Like you said, you have to practice like you're going to win every season and you have to win every game. And you have to, even when you're practicing, you do the same thing. There was a saying at the Giants in those days, and I'm not saying it was unique to the Giants, but it made a lot of sense to me. And the notion was, coaches and players, win the at-bat. Win the at-bat. Whether you're pitching and defending or you're batting. Win the at-bat. Win the inning. Win the game. Win the series. And that's how you get into the playoffs. That's awesome. That's awesome. We might take that and make a version for, for ourselves at the company. <laughs> So we, we do think about building a championship team, having a championship style. What would you say is your style of play? You might think of my approach as being what folks these days are calling positive coaching. And that means, I think, having a real appreciation for the skills and the commitment of your colleagues, being right among them and from the outset, exuding your appreciation for their skills and their commitment, and then giving them all kinds of credit for a job well done. We always talk in terms of psychological compensation and financial compensation. Financial is very powerful, but so is psychological. And if people on my team know that they will get all the credit they deserve, and maybe even a little more, that as the captain, I don't want any. I don't need any. I'm deflecting it towards them. They will outperform day after day. And I think that's a very powerful force. And just exuding, again, showing them you have confidence in them, that you know they'll do a good job. And that, I think, inspires them to rise and shine because they know that what they will do, if they do it well, will be appreciated and that they will get the benefit of the doubt as they work with you. So positive coaching, I think, is works in so many ways. Just to double click on it, Bill, because I think I totally agree and believe in it. But with that comes a responsibility of being honest. Because positive coaching is not about giving a participation trophy. If something is not done right and it could be done better, and it's a loss, if I can go back to the Giants, you have to talk about it as a loss. Yeah. You cannot say we tried hard. You know, you should take it on the chin. Is that fair? That is fair. I think that candor, honesty is an important part of coaching or leading an organization in any way. But I also think it's important how you phrase that. It's one thing to say to your engineer, you really did a lousy job of debugging that and you're causing us a lot of problems, rather than instead saying to the engineer, uh, that was a tough assignment and we fell just short. Let's, what can we learn from that? Because you need to do a better job. We want you to, we know you can do a better job. That piece is very important to say to someone, Chet, you're very good at what you do. We expect a lot of you and we know that you can do this in this way. That gets, I think a very positive response out of a negative instance. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Bill Gates used to say at annual reviews, you've, you've had a good year. Uh, I've seen what you can do. You've done this, you've done that. Good job. Thanks for all of that. Uh, and by the way, now that I know what you, you can do all those things, I want you to do more next year for the company. <laughs> so sort of build on success. 
I think it's it's important to to take it, whether it's a loss or a win, but to make sure you phrase it as we didn't play to our potential. We are capable of far more. And let's make sure the next time we do this, we play to our fullest potential. Exactly. Right. And I think that spin, I think, is really important. Very good point. So at this point in your life, you've decided to do something else. You're doing the World Justice Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that in your own words? Appreciate your asking about that, Chet. When I was going around the world for Microsoft and seeing realities in dozens and dozens of different countries and communities, some of them quite developed, some of them underdeveloped countries, I kept asking myself at the end of those trips, what did I see? What did I learn? Why were some of these places seem more functional as communities, more fair play communities, and others seemed to be struggling? They were riddled with corruption, with inequalities, with even some forms of repression? And why were some more open and have better economies and more fair play and others? And I kept coming back to, because the ones that were functional in that sense had this thing called, which we came to call the rule of law, which nobody defines, everybody uses it. It's in the news every day, a thousand ways. And we have tried at our project to define it. The distilled definition is very simple. It's a system of laws and institutions that enforce those laws and norms that come out of that legal process and a community commitment to a system that delivers for people who live and work in that community, again, four things. It delivers for them accountability of public and private actors, and then you have an open government so people know what's going on. It's not behind closed doors. And finally, some form, formal or informal, of accessible, impartial justice. Whether you go to the elder in the next village over or you go to some fancy courthouse with people in wigs and robes, is there accessible means of resolving disputes? So that's what we mean by the rule of law. And the more we observe, and the more we collect data and analyze it at the project chat, the more we are persuaded that the rule of law, that it is this foundation for communities that are functional, communities that are just, have opportunity, and as a result of that are peaceful. That is awesome. For, for all the listeners, by the way, Bill's been smiling the entire time, but he smiled just a little bit more when I asked the question about the World Justice Project. So. He is clearly super excited about that. How do you measure progress of something like this? Well, that's a key part of our enterprise at the project, Chet. We measure it because every year we collect data on 140 countries in this world and we put them into our index. And so you can look at our index on our website easily and you can see how a particular country is doing in its adherence to the rule of law. Where are they strong? Where are they weak? And we think that information like that obviously invites reform and improvements. So we are, we are in the measuring business very emphatically. That is awesome. One last question before we go into rapid fire questions. What advice would you give to a younger version of yourself? The advice that I'd give to all younger people is 
find a way to achieve a noble purpose by noble means. And that can be done in business, it can be done in government, it can be done in the professions, it can be done in education, in faith, in the arts. Every walk of work has opportunities to engage in a noble cause and to achieve your goals by noble means. It's not good enough to have a noble cause and, and to cheat to get there. You've got to be noble in both regards. And to recognize that in order to do that, you've got to do that old bromide of planning your work and then working your plan. There's really no substitute for that, I have found in my 65 years in the workplace, if you will. And another notion is, and you would know this very well, I think, don't let a fear of failure, take some chances, take some experience, don't let that fear of failure block your imagination, your creative instincts, your innovative instincts, because if you do, you won't achieve what you want. Sometimes you have to try and sometimes you have to fail. You can always learn from failures, but most of all, stay creative, stay innovative, because that's so essential. If you boil all this down, Chad, it comes down to exhorting young folks to engage at the workplace and in their communities as what I call a, quote, useful citizen. How are you your brothers and sisters keeper? How do you make the community work better for other people? How do you do your share of making it a functional, just, opportunity, opportunity peaceful community? And if you have those kinds of goals about you, those themes in your life, I think, wherever you choose to work, wherever you choose to live, you're gonna have a very fulfilling life. That is awesome. That is phenomenal. All right, I'm gonna ask you a few questions and I want you to say the first word or phrase that comes to mind. Please. Who would you love to have at a dinner party? <laughs> That's such a great, great question. I'd want Aristotle there, the father of philosophy. He, he figured stuff out, worried about stuff that nobody had before him. I'd like to have Denise Diderot there for his encyclopedia, for his gathering of and sharing of knowledge. I'd love to have Martin Luther there to talk about religion. What was that? What was that rebellion all about? Marie Curie for her advances in medical sciences. I'd want Eleanor Roosevelt there for human rights. She, she brought these nations together to draft that universal declaration of human rights. It has withstood the test of time. It is such, such a profound and clear statement of basic human rights that have to be the standard everywhere in this world of ours. I'd like to have Billie Holiday there for her song, Strange Fruit, about the lynchings and her incredible talent and her commitment to the reality of being an African-American in this country in those days and still in these days. And I'd want to have Bill Russell there as a player and a coach and as a civil rights activist. We just lost Bill a couple weeks ago. And all of my admiration for him, I did not realize he marched with Martin Luther King Jr. And he was there with Muhammad Ali at the Selective Service Office. All of that on top of 11 world championships. More than one ring for every finger and thumb on his able hands. That's a big dinner party, Bill. That's a big dinner party.
you have 16 grandchildren. What's the one thing you learned from them? Uh, to stay open to new ideas and new opportunities and experiences to keep the kid in me alive somehow. What would be the title of your memoirs? Hmm. Justice for all. I think justice for everybody would be awesome. One word to describe a great leader. Please give me three. All right. Curiosity, humility, and empathy. Are these stack ranked? Like, would you do one, two, and three? I'd like to think if you're naturally curious and you behave that way, that that means you've got a humility about you. You don't know it all by any means. And in turn, empathy means as you discover more about life in realities, you have to be more empathetic. I love that people now talk about not just IQ, but EQ. And I think what we've learned is that business leaders in particular, Chet, that the more successful of them tend to have high EQ. And if you want to look for just one piece of makeup, you ought to start with EQ before going to IQ. Bill, this was awesome. Thank you for sharing your inspirational journey. Our listeners are going to have a blast listening to this conversation. Likewise, Jeff. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Execution Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. We have many more phenomenal guests and inspiring stories to come. So be sure to join us next time.